You're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. I'm your host, Ramin Shah. Today, the mental health crisis has reached a tipping point. One in five adults has a mental health condition, and over the last 20 years, there's been a 30% increase in suicide rates and a 130% increase in depression amongst young adults. From an economic perspective, we're facing a staggering $200 billion a year in lost earnings attributed to mental illness. And in many ways, there are troubling signs that these numbers will actually get worse. These conditions are further exacerbated by two phenomena, uneven access to mental health services and the stigma against mental health. Despite the sheer size and growing demand for services, the therapist labor market is actually growing 25% year over year. The space is incredibly fragmented and underserved. New York City alone has a staggering 90% of its providers working as solo practitioners. The lack of sophistication, quality of user experience, and shortages that follow subscale practices add up. In episode 31, we unpacked all these dynamics and how software and design play a pivotal role in improving the patient and provider experience with Harry Ritter, founder and CEO of Alma. Alma is a new practice model for therapists designed to elevate the therapy experience and simplify access to great care. So without further ado, Harry, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, so Harry, I'm excited to have you on the show today to dive you know, very deeply into a topic I don't think we talk about enough in society today, mental health. Uh, and we'll jump into Alma in a minute. But before that, you know, tell us a little bit more about your background. You were a Harvard undergrad. You spent some time at McKinsey. You went to law school. You are a doctor. You've gone to med school. And you were a part of a, a really interesting kind of hyperscale story at Oscar. So talk a little bit more about your background and, and how it led you to founding Alma. Sure. I, uh, I've been very fortunate to, uh, to have a, a bunch of really great experiences along the way that led me here. Um, but I think fundamentally, I, I started from a place uh, of uh, being the, the son of doctors and the grandson of a doctor. I, I came from a family that was very much in the healthcare and uh, health and wellness space. And so I think fundamentally, that was a very big part of my DNA growing up, something that I always felt very passionately about and saw as a really important part of the lives of the people who mattered uh, the most to me. So I, I finished up uh, college, as you mentioned, went to medical school, uh, trained in internal medicine at Mass General Hospital. And after finishing up my internship, um, I had done some startups along the way, one actually as an undergrad and the other in medical school. And those had sort of uh, planted a bug uh, in terms of loving the idea of innovation and technology and its role in really making uh, healthcare more exciting, more accessible, and uh, creating more innovative business models. And so um, ended up coming down to New York, uh, worked at McKinsey for a few years, and then was lucky enough to join uh, pretty early on at, at Oscar. And um, that was a, a really amazing place. I mean, it's, uh, was such a, it is a, such a special company, uh, really tackling a massive challenge with incredible passion, uh, incredible innovation. I joined back when it was about a 25, 30-person business, got to see uh, the business evolve so much over the course of the four years that I was there. Um, and we really saw, you know, what kind of uh, innovation uh, could happen when you really applied data and design and, and a good product mindset to, uh, to the healthcare universe. Um, and while I was there, I also had the chance to launch the Oscar Center, which was our, our brick and mortar primary care mental health and wellness space out in Brooklyn. And um, I had come from uh, some experiences that we, we can jump into a little bit down the road, really appreciating how much mental health was something that 
mattered and how important having access to mental health was for people. And at the Oscar Center, uh, really saw there firsthand how much people were looking for better access to service. So that was a big part of my path to uh, to coming to Alma. Yeah, and I want to talk about you know some of those points, kind of especially on you know design and and mixing technology and kind of physical facilities. And we'll 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 get into that I think a ton when we talk about Alma. But before we jump in. You know, let's let's set the stage a little bit with the current state of the mental health landscape. You know, the crisis is reaching a, a tipping point. Um, a staggering one in five adults has a mental health condition, and over the last twenty years, there's been a thirty percent increase in suicide rates and a hundred and thirty percent increase in depression amongst young adults. And one of the most surprising statistics, I think, for me was, you know, from a business perspective, um, you know, we're actually facing over, around two hundred billion dollars in lost earnings uh, on an annual basis attributed to mental illness. So. Tell us a little bit more about the landscape and, you know, your real, really your perspective on why as a society we're facing record numbers with respect to mental health conditions today. You know, you're, you're so right. It's, it's, a, it's an issue that I think has become increasingly one that we are noticing and appreciating. And it has such far-reaching implications, as you mentioned, you know, just in terms of impact on the economy, uh, impact on overall happiness and well-being. I think... Um, there, there are a, a bunch of factors that have made this a more prominent part of the conversation. There, there's so much about our society today, the speed at which things move, our, our exposure to uh, various inputs, whether it's through social media or the media generally, uh, that have really made put a lot of stresses on people and created a, a, an environment for people that, that, that can sometimes feel um, overwhelming. Um, and, you know, it's also an area that's been something we just haven't talked about for a while. So I think some of the growth in what we're seeing is because people are finally acknowledging uh, the burden that uh, that this particular part of the landscape places on, on people. And, and that's been a big part of this as well. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think in many ways, you know, some of the pieces you just mentioned, especially around, you know, technology or kind of pace of movement. I actually think they're, these, those are the exact kinds of troubling signs that the numbers will get worse. And I, I think if you pare it down, um, you know, mental health conditions, I think, are further exacerbated really by two phenomena. So one is just uneven access to mental health services. You know, the Mental Health America study recently found, I think, 50 plus percent of Americans don't even have access to basic services. And then the second is something you were just mentioning, which is the stigma against mental health. Um, you know, many don't get the care they need, even if they have access because of the associated label. So, you know, talk about a little bit more about how you see mental health trending. Um, and then specifically, you know, what do you see in the landscape with respect to both access to care and, and stigma? You know, you, you point out some really important statistics about how the crisis uh, has continued to worsen over uh, the previous years and, and, and reasons to, to, to be worried about what's coming up in the future. The one thing I'll say on a hardening note is I, I do think that we are also living through a period, an unprecedented period of acknowledgement uh, and normalization. Um, you know, you see celebrities, you see leaders in politics, you see leaders in communities uh, stepping up and saying that mental health deserves our attention, that uh, the work that's done in mental health and mental well-being is something that's you know really important and necessary. And so I think you know, you're seeing a bunch of these trends, whether it's the opiate epidemic or you know, depression among teens and all these other areas where you see numbers trending in a bad direction. But one of the trends that I also think needs to be called out is, I think, a hopeful one. Um, and it really begins with, uh, with people who are, I think, really coming to a place where they are acknowledged 
this is something we need to talk about. This is something we need to address. And um, it's something that we need to respect because it's an important part of, of the overall of the overall landscape. So I think definitely some trends that are worrisome, but also a few that are, are particularly hopeful um, and important for thinking about the future. Yeah, and I, I like the framing of kind of the heartening side because I, I think it actually ties very deeply and very well into why a solution like uh, Alma makes sense kind of where we are today in society. So, you know, without kind of belaboring the point, let's uh, let's talk about Alma, right? Let's start with the brief and, and we'll continue to go deeper. But tell us a little bit more about Alma and, and the problem you're solving. So uh, we, we built Alma to really be part of that solution and that conversation about how uh, society ought to think about mental health and how we ought to organize mental health for consumers of care so that they can have the best possible experience. So specifically at Alma, what we're doing is we're trying to create a new practice model uh, for therapists and other uh, professionals in the space. So what we do is we bring together independent providers across an array of disciplines and areas of clinical focus, and we give them access to our co-practicing community model, which really provides them three core benefits. Uh, first, they have access to a community of like-minded professionals, so people with whom they can refer, people with whom they can learn and support one another in collaborative environments that are designed for self-growth and, and for, uh, for overall collaboration. Secondly, we give them access to a full-stack technology platform, so everything that they need to power their practice from professionally designed profiles on Alma's directory uh, to core tools around online scheduling and billing to really help facilitate the, the process of uh, finding a therapist and then paying for that care. And then we give them access to beautifully designed flexible office space. So spaces that were designed for mental health, that were built to really elevate the experience, to make people feel at ease uh, and excited about the fact that they're doing such important work uh, as they try to make themselves into the best possible versions um, of who they could be. So that's what we're uh, what we're up to over here. Yeah, it's a... Uh... It's an ambitious mission. I, I think it's a really interesting time to be working on the problem, you know, for a few reasons, right? So one is, you know, you touched on kind of the, the provider side above, and we'll, we'll dig into that. We talked a little bit, I think, about the patient side above. You know, on the, on the provider side, there's actually a lot of things, a lot of characteristics which make this kind of palatable, right? So if, if you think about the therapy-type experience today, it's not only, I think, subpar in many ways for patients, but it's it's pretty subpar for practitioners. And it's I think it's actually the root cause. You know, I think the root cause for that is how fragmented and underserved the space is. So, you know, despite the sheer size and growing demand, um, you know, the the labor market, I think, for for therapists, and you know better than I, but I think the latest you know statistic on this was the labor market itself was growing about twenty five percent year over year. But a staggering percentage of these providers uh, work as solo practitioners, right? In New York alone, you know, 90% of the therapist base works as solo practitioners. So I think the lack of sophistication, you know, quality of user experience, shortages that follow subscale practice, all these things, you know, add up. So talk, talk a little bit more on about your perspective on the provider side of the equation. And then, you know, some of the things both uh, from a technology perspective as well as from a non-technology perspective, uh, you guys are doing up to shore up that experience. So I'm, I'm for, for me, really began as a provider for providers thinking about what was what was preventing providers from doing more, uh, from being able to magnify their impact uh, and provide a better experience for more and more people. And I think you know you, the, the the points that you made are are exactly what we saw uh, out in the field. So when when we were at the Oscar Center, we were trying to work with uh, patients there who were looking for access to mental services and spending a lot of time out in the community 
talking to providers, understanding what was going on, what was limiting their their impact or opportunity for impact, we saw that this was one of the most incredible communities of people. You know, uh, very quickly growing, very passionate, hyper compassionate, trying to really do the best possible by their clients, but also absurdly fragmented. And you were talking about people who had trained for years and years and years to be the most compassionate and capable clinician, but not necessarily uh, how to run a, a great small business, how to market a practice, how to create those processes and technological tools that really uh, help facilitate a process uh, for people to be able to get care and have a good experience. And so one of the things that we, we started thinking about was, especially in mental health, where the relationship between a provider and the client is so fundamental to a good outcome. Uh, where you know it's so much about what's happening inside the context of that provider-client relationship. What could we do to help uh, these providers and help them be more successful? And I think, from a philosophical perspective, one of the things that was really important to us was thinking about uh, that. Thinking about the and their clients as opposed to necessarily a more top-down approach to what we thought programmatically uh, would be the would be the right way of, of solving these challenges for people. So that was really um, you know a big part of this. We saw an incredibly compassionate, capable community growing very, very quickly, but very underserved by existing technology. And by virtue of being so fragmented, lacking access to both technical and not technical tools to, to be successful. Uh, you asked a little bit about what are some of the things that we're doing um, on both sides to, to shore up that experience? The, 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 the best way I can answer that is really uh, through the lens of community. Um, and I think for us, that's really the core thing that we're trying to build. We saw when we talked to people, you know, space is an issue, access to services and technology, marketing, all those things are things that they needed and all obviously very important and fundamental parts of our platform. But at the very, very core of it all was this thirst and desire to be part of a community of people that they could connect with and grow with uh, and share experience with. And so, so much of what we're doing on both the technical and non-technical side, our, our provider lounge, which is big wraparound terrace and a large part of our space dedicated just for providers to be able to spend time together, our technology and a lot of our you know internal tooling that we do to try to cultivate community is really focused on, I think, that core uh, observation that we felt we really needed to service. I think when you take community as the, at the center of it, it actually it's pretty interesting because it it, it ties to your it ties to your acquisition philosophy, um, you know, pretty closely, right? Which is to build a strong community, and and this is a hypothesis from my perspective, so correct me if I'm wrong. But to build a strong community, it's not just about kind of in early days opening up the doors um, to to every you know potential therapist to every potential provider, but rather doing so in a in a relatively select and intentional way, right? Right now, I think exclusively, you know, you're allowing providers in on an application basis, and they actually have to be referred via the existing Alma network. So, you know, naturally, my mind goes to you know the tension of you know quality versus speed and scale. So, how do you think about balancing those two dynamics as you build out the community? For us, the quality of our community is predicated directly on the quality of its participants. So making sure that we are attracting and retaining and building a great experience for top quality therapists who are excited about our model, who are passionate about collaboration, who are committed to growth and, and development is, is fundamental. And you know, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, when we look at members who have joined our community since we've opened, the overwhelming 
overwhelming majority of them come directly via referral from one of our existing members, and we we really we really love that. For us, that's you know the best sign that we're doing something right. Um, if people who are part of this community feel that it's sufficiently valuable that they want to recommend it to people that they like and respect and would like to be uh, spending more time with. Um, the, the question you ask is a great one, which is how does that uh, balance on the question uh, with the question of speed of growth? But for us, uh, you know, the quality issue is, is definitely the dominant consideration. And given the, the nature of the market and what we're trying to build here, we're not necessarily trying to build uh, a community that includes tens of thousands of providers out of the gate. If we can, in our first community, have, uh, you know, 100 or so providers who are tightly knit, passionate about what they're doing, uh, that will represent a massive, uh, a massive opportunity and a massive part of, uh, of the market in the, in the area where we, we exist today. So the way we think about it is if we can create a sort of virtuous cycle where, you know, people feel that they can refer, that they can bring in people that they, that they think would be the right fit for the community, but we can do it in a way that is measured and really takes quality as the first and foremost consideration, we can scale something pretty substantial, but do it in a way that is you know, thoughtful and, and, and guided by the right set of principles. Yeah, so talk, you, you mentioned virtuous cycle, um, and I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit more because I think that's actually, in, in many ways, the kind of underpinning of, uh, of how this model works so well and, and why it's so interesting. So if I kind of take a pass at, at the virtuous cycle from an outside-in perspective, to me, it looks like it, it looks like the following, right? Patient demand creates more demand for practitioners, better practitioners via quality curation and then and tech enabled and non-tech enabled services provides better service. Better service creates more patient demand, and then more patient demand requires more practitioners. And I think there's, you know, there's a direct cycle, a direct virtuous cycle, right? In that, I think there's also kind of a meta cycle, uh, if you will, which is. You know, as you get more patience and more demand goes up, it also creates, you know, a diversity of requirements and, and scale, right, which creates demand for different types of providers, different types of service creation, um, you know, which makes sense at, at different types of thresholds. Is that how you think about, you know, the virtuous cycle of the business or, or do you have a different kind of take on it? I think the, the, way, the way you're describing it is, is, is very thoughtful and, and, and dead on, you know, as you can create uh, an environment that really provides a comprehensive solution to people's needs, uh, that creates this virtuous cycle that you're describing of, you know, demand for services and therefore a need to, to uh, increase the capacity of the community to satisfy that demand. The one, the one uh, lens that for us I think has been really important is, again, thinking through the power of network when it comes to healthcare and collaborative uh, collaborative infrastructure for providers. So, you know, one of the things that we've been super excited about is to see the connectivity happening between providers. So not just a value proposition for community members because of increased demand for services through consumers, but a value proposition for providers uh, via increased connectivity within the community itself. So we have, you know, now a number of examples here at Alma where you know, a, a provider, providers are engaging in supervisions with one another, so clinically working with one another on, you know, growth and development. We have examples of providers, non-prescribing providers, referring to prescribing providers in the community when their clients need access to medications. Because of the sort of diversity of areas of clinical focus, we have providers who are, you know, referring uh, their existing colleagues to one another when their needs sort of grow and, and 
that's also I think another another dimension to this virtuous cycle, not just the, the demand side for service, but also the kind of internal connectivity side, uh, which is a really exciting part of all this. Yeah, and I'll, I want to talk about that a little bit more, Harry. Right, because I'm I'm curious on uh, you know, so what's the vision for Alma to continue to provide you know deeper value. Um, in this kind of in a, in a kind of future of work landscape, right? I know that's a, a very big and, and loaded question, but the way I think about it is, you know, at scale, I can start to envision a whole host of variety of services and pairings um, that start to be really interesting. So one was, you know, exactly what you just mentioned. You know, you guys have nutritionists, wellness uh, folks, wellness professionals, um, you know, therapists. I can see you know, teaming up, you know, to fully service an individual or, um, you know, being the staff essentially that services a company, for example, I can see right. deeper longitudinal analytics, you know, from a technology and a data perspective for companies on, you know, pre and post mental health performance and productivity improvement. Um, so, you know, in the same way that, you know, marketplaces for professionals, you know, enable teaming up at scale to do bigger projects, I think kind of future of work allows for models in which not only do you scale the practitioner via tech-enabled services, but you create opportunities for impact which wouldn't have existed before. So how do you how do you think about kind of uh, the the broad standing vision and, and where you want to take the company? You know, it's a great question. I mean, these are the these are the kinds of questions where you, you wish you were sitting in a plush leather chair and you know by a fire and could talk yeah. about these things for for hours and hours. They, they, for me, this is one of the most fundamental. Um, aspects of what we're doing that really excites me. Um, you know, if you think about the history of collaboration uh, between different professionals, and you go back, you know, 67 years, 67 years in, in healthcare, at least, you know, you remember a world where on the doctor side, for example, you had people practicing as independents. Um, they had, you know, sort of informal networks of people that they worked with, but everyone was sort of their own island. And then you saw this sort of corporatization of medicine, uh, these you know massive entities that sprung up, consolidators, that uh, had a very sort of top-down corporate approach to how you could organize a workforce and leverage economies of scale to provide certain benefits to the overall ecosystem. I think in other areas outside of healthcare, you've seen a third and very exciting uh, approach or business model evolving, which is more of a, of a network approach, where you take uh, these nodes, these independent nodes in, a, in an ecosystem, and you connect them through a platform that consists of technology and other sort of values and kind of platform fundamentals that then enable uh, the same kinds of economies of scale you have through a more corporate structure, but in a much more flexible and dynamic way. And particularly in healthcare, where ultimately the thing that you're doing is hyper, hyper localized. It's all about that single individual and their single constellation of needs. Uh, you can start to power interactions at that hyper local level in a way that's far more powerful and impactful than, than it ever uh, could have been before. And I think that, that, from a kind of philosophical business model perspective, is one of the things that really excites I think it's it's a really interesting point because you know I don't have a healthcare background, but if I, I have a legal background, if I and if I think about how lawyers and kind of law firms operate, um, you know, there's always a perspective that I've carried, which is you know for a single kind of M and A project, for example, 
the heuristic of, you know, the kind of proxy that, you know, people judge with today is, uh, you know, brand reputation of firms, right? And I, I think that gets you, you know, 60, 70% of the way there. But if there was an agility, there was a model in which, um, which really, you know, thought through agility and said, let me take the best, uh, you know, M&A kind of core professional uh, segmented for a particular industry, segmented for a particular uh, stage of business. And let me also take the best, you know, tax professional, IP professional, benefits professional, antitrust professional, again, for those same kinds of cuts, you could form a super class M&A team that's perfect for that particular project, right? And that's a type of service or experience, I think, that gets very challenging at kind of an individual law firm level, because it's very difficult to, you know, it's, it's nearly, frankly, I think it's borderline impossible to have that type of agility of, you know, one institution or so. And so I think on the healthcare side, the, the same kind of draw that I see is I could very well see kind of a teaming of a nutritionist, a wellness professional, a therapist, et cetera, that can really get, you know, unbundled like software historically has. It's why we don't see suite-like products anymore, right? We see things unbundled. And you can really unbundle it and pair it to kind of to the, the core customer experience. So I think it's a, it's a very interesting kind of nuance and insight. And I, I also think, you know, one of the things I want to I get your thoughts on and, and talk a little bit more about is one of the underlying things that I think separates Alma significantly so more so from, you know, from other folks in this space, which is the design of the facility, right? I think, you know, a cynic would look at this business model, would look at, you know, your company and say, you're a WeWork for therapists. Um, and why can't someone else just kind of come in and do it? But I think it's a lot more, especially on the design side. You know, I, I, I think being able to go into a location specifically designed for its purpose that elevates the experience you know, that has themes of you know healing, growth, peace. These are these are all kind of critical components to making people feel excited. I think about going to an Alma facility. Um, so I know your first facility just opened up. Uh, I haven't you know seen it in person yet, but the pictures are are incredible. How did walk walk us through a little bit more about you know how did you think about designing the facility? Where did the inspiration come from? And and why did um, you know why was design such an important component to you as you as you thought through this idea? Design is such a powerful uh, lever, and I've seen you know, over and over again just how really focusing on the details uh, can be. So, you know, for us, when we thought about designing this space and trying to really build an experience, I think you know a lot of it was really um, geared around two two big things for us, um, and for me, I think these are also two of our, our most important differentiators um, from uh, another type of real estate product. The first uh, really thinking about client experience and really the integrated experience, uh, including how, you know, how it interplays with our technology platform. And then the second is how think about the role of space in supporting our community. Uh, because as I said before, I think our fundamental product, the thing that we're really trying to build here, is that sense of, of community and connectivity, which, um, in particular in our context, is itself such a valuable thing to, to, to create. So when it comes to the design of the space, um, what we began with was really uh, thinking about uh, patient journey. What was it like from the first time that you interacted with Alma via our directory to you know, getting that first appointment reminder, coming through the building downstairs, and then ultimately finding yourself up on our floor? What was that whole experience like before you ever even walked through our front door? And then from the time you do walk through our front door until the time how did we make sure we did everything possible to inspire you, to make you feel 
proud of the work that you were doing here, to feel comfortable and safe so that you know you, you could really engage in the work in a good and thoughtful way. And then after you left, feeling like you knew that you kind of had the, the right tools in place to be able to reach them to the back. So you know, a few things for exa- as examples of, of things that we've designed into the space. One is our, our appointment reminders come with a badge to the building that allows you to access the building without having to provide a driver's license. So for us, that was a really important thing to think about from a design perspective. It's before you ever walk through our front doors, but um, it's an important moment. You know, you're coming for something that might be a little bit anxiety-provoking for you, maybe first time uh, considering therapy. You walk in through the front doors, and you know you don't necessarily want to give over your driver's license. Is the first thing that you do. And so thinking about how we uh, made people feel like they were protected from, from before they even came up to our floor. And then when you do come up to our floor, there's things that we've designed to the experience that we think are, are really important. So, for example, when you check in, uh, we have a staff member there, but you're also able to check in, uh, self-check in on our on our uh, kiosk-based iPads. And that means that you don't necessarily need to declare who you are, who you're there to see. Uh, it sends a text message to the provider and text back to the system notifying you which room to go to. So, again, trying to reduce those friction moments, those moments that sort of make you cringe when someone comes out you know, yelling for your name in a waiting room uh, and, and making it making it feel like a space that's kind of a lot more comfortable and, and easy to work through. And there are other things that we've done in the space that you know we think are really important. So for example, waiting in our space is distributed throughout the floor as opposed to being all aggregated in one place. We make sure that waiting uh, seats are never directly opposite another waiting seat, so you're never facing someone else. It's a small thing, but it's the kinds of things that make a for people who might be at a vulnerable moment or might be looking for a little bit more, more solace in the space. And then we try to also integrate, uh, you know, experience into what happens here. So one of the partnerships that we were really excited about at the get-go uh, was one we had a talk space, and they power for us four meditation pods here at Alma. And so we have plans to show, you know, 30 minutes, an hour before a visit, uh, grab a tea at our, at our beverage station and, and hop into one of the meditation pods. And we'll sit there and, you know, really allow themselves to settle into uh, the right kind of mindset for the most powerful and effective uh, therapy experience possible. And so as you, as you design the space, I, I really like to focus on details because I, I completely agree. It's, it's all of those, I think, little gut-wrenching moments as you go through kind of the value chain or the life cycle of the experience that in aggregate make, you know, make a material difference. I'm curious how you thought through the tension between, you know, what's good for an individual, um, you know, quote-unquote user, right, a patient to the actual facility versus what's good um, for the practitioner? Because I imagine in many ways this could introduce challenging constraints. Were there, were there kind of points of tension or moments of tension in which you had to specifically think, uh, you know, a certain design choice could be zero sum? How, how did you kind of manage through that process? What we found was generally uh, if we took the approach of the uh, the client, so to speak, so the, the, the person that we were designing for as being not the, the client or the provider, but rather being that client-provider relationship, that we could generally find solutions that worked well. Um, you know, as an example, um, when you think about uh, the configuration of our rooms and the designs of our rooms, uh, you know, all of our rooms are designed to be essentially identical to one another. Uh, we have custom art from a, an artist uh, on Brooklyn who designed uh, art for our space, and so that art is not available anywhere outside of Alma, but in Alma, each treatment room has the exact same pieces of art on each wall. And for us, that was an example of trying to create 
uh, spaces where if you came uh, as one of our community members, and you may not be in the exact same room each time that you're here, but your room will always look essentially identical. Um, so that for the relationship, for the client-provider relationship, which is, again, the thing that we designed for, you create a stable environment that feels um, that feels familiar and that feels accessible for the work that's going to be done there. So we, we focus really on, on that, on the work that's happening, as opposed to thinking about how to customize you know, rooms for individual providers uh, so, or, or other kinds of considerations that would have maybe created some of those tensions. Yeah. And if, if you take a step back, you know, what have been some of the other challenges you've gone through in building uh, Alma? You know, a, a real estate and a technology business in and, of, uh, in and of themselves are both hard businesses, but, you know, combined is, um, I'd argue, even even harder. I think the best products are the ones that look incredibly simple. You know, Uber, you press a button, you get a ride, but are really complex on the back end in many ways. We obviously haven't talked about, you know, licensing, regulatory hurdles, et cetera. Um, you know, what have been and kind of continue to be some of the biggest challenges in building Alma today? You're absolutely right. I mean, I think when you're, when you're trying to build uh, a technology-first type of business in an environment that is touching something else, whether it's cars or homes or physical you know, office spaces or whatever it might be, you end up bumping up against uh, people who uh, come from different industrial backgrounds and function differently. Uh, and, you know, at the, at the outset of a business like Alma, that means you have to convince landlords that, you know, you're, you're a credit-worthy uh, user of their space. You have to uh, figure out how to translate between general contractors and uh, IT teams who, you know, may have very different modes of thinking and, and operating. Uh, and, and really, you know, figure out how to do that, that integration across both. I think those have definitely created for us some of our, our bigger challenges, just thinking about how do we uh, make all of that work seamlessly wherever we start to touch outside of our core DNA. Um, and to your comment earlier, figuring out how to really design the space and execute on that vision uh, in a way that's consistent and in a way that kind of works seamlessly across the different stakeholders that we touch. And I think the other uh, challenge that we, you know, we've thought a lot about is this question of, uh, of how to uh, create narrative. So, you know, at the end of the day, so much about what is happening at Alma is about narrative, people's personal narratives and the work that they're doing here to craft those narratives and understand those narratives. And so you have a lot of uh, deeply individual and private things happening here. At the same time, you also have uh, a more uh, macro uh, thing happening, which is this uh, movement that we see towards people wanting to more actively discuss mental health, think about it at an aggregate level, advocate for, for, for change and, and better things uh, to come. And so I think that's also been an exciting and interesting part of, of our particular business is how to respect the sort of sanctity and privacy and um, and just, the, you know, the importance of what's happening in a space like ours uh, with also on the other end uh, this impulse to want to really take what we're doing and use it towards a greater good and using it towards a sort of mission-driven, um, uh, you know, goal of, of making mental health more accessible and something that we feel more excited to talk about. Yeah, and Harry, I, I actually want to round out you know our talk today with um, a little bit of an, a, a personal kind of anecdote of, of that sanctity and privacy 
uh, you know, insofar as you're willing, of course. Um, and it's your own personal experience with therapy. You know, you've noted yourself, uh, you visit a therapist, and I, I'd love to hear more about that. Um, I think, you know, one of the points you've made in the past, which really deeply resonates with me, is the idea of taking care of your mental health in the same way you take care of your physical health. You know, there's no stigma to say you're working out or going to the gym. And so, you know, why should there be when you're working out your mind? So, you know, if you're willing, and, and of course, to the degree you're comfortable, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about, you know, your experience with therapy, how it's helped you, and and what would you suggest to others out there that, you know, don't currently go to a therapist? You know, it's so interesting. I mean, even in the, the question that you asked, you know, when we talk to people about uh, a knee surgery or uh, a great gastroenterologist or whatever it would be, we're generally much more willing to sort of ask the question and learn about experience and mental health we, 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 we treat with a certain reverence. And I think it's emblematic of, of, this, of this challenge. I mean, for me, um, you know, it's so good that we're having these conversations and talking about it. For me, I, I began uh, starting to see a therapist about 10 years ago during a period of enormous transition in my life. Um, and I've continued to go ever since. Um, it was a period when I was thinking a lot about my professional future, about challenges at home um, with elderly parents and things like that. And, uh, you know, for me, it was an opportunity to sort of step outside of the day-to-day and sit down with someone who had seen hundreds, if not thousands of people, uh, understood uh, the kinds of experiences that people had and could provide me uh, a third-party perspective uh, from, a, from a place of knowledge and uh, compassion and empathy. And I always say this, I, I love my primary care doctor. Uh, he's, he's great. I see him every year and a half or so, and, you know, that's sort of that. Uh, but if I think about who I am as a father, as a spouse, as a colleague, um, so much of the best things that have happened to me have come through um, my therapist and the people that then that therapist connected me to and connected loved ones of mine to over, over the course of uh, the last uh, the last 10 years. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I've continued to go uh, in, in, in different phases. You know, there's been periods in my life the uh, last 10 years where I've gone intensively, and then there's been periods where I've gone more sporadically. And I think one of the things that's been interesting to me is that the times when I've gone, when things have been going well, and I would have thought, you know, I don't really need to do this, have actually been some of the most most valuable. And you made this comment about going to the gym and the fact that we sort of, we, we actually take pride. You know, we go to the gym, we have a trainer, we're working on ourselves, we're on a soul cycle, we're going to Barry's, whatever it might be. Um, we have no similar way of thinking about our mental well-being. And um, I, I've started thinking a lot about, you know, these times when I go when things are going well, as, as preventive mental health, how do you put in place the, the various tools, the various uh, ways of framing things, thinking about things uh, that help you uh, build resilience, that help you uh, create the capacity for, for greater growth? We're actually having a conversation here. I was talking to a few of our, our community members about uh, this in the context of, of marriage and sex. So, you know, people will talk about couples counseling or, uh, or sex counseling as, you know, these things that sound remedial. If something's wrong and you need to fix it. And I said, you know, what would it be like if we were to sort of rebrand and, you know, your spouse were to come to you one day and say, hey, I, I think we should go for sex coaching. You know, that, that sounds great. Like, that sounds like something that, you know, is about growth and development or, uh, you know, marriage coaching. How do we take this most fundamental relationship uh, the basis of, uh, of of family and all these other things, and actually think about it as a as something that deserves growth, that deserves. 
you know, physical health is an important one. I think we're seeing more globally in wellness this trend towards uh, preventive uh, preventive care, and we haven't yet seen it really extend above the neck in the right way. Um, and I hope I hope that, that Alma can be part of helping that happen in a really really good way. Well, Harry, this has been you know a really really interesting and insightful conversation. I I actually personally you know, feel it's one of the ones uh, that we've had on our podcast that is actually going to, you know, touch many of our listeners in a, in a different way. So I'm, I'm really glad you were able to make the time. And, you know, thanks again for joining us. We really enjoyed having you on today. Thank you so much for having me.